You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. We started this um, series on the family last week by talking about uh, moms, and if you missed my disclaimer last week, I'm not going to give it to you again every week because I told you um, I wouldn't, but I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version that I'm aware that not everybody in the room is married. Now, some of you are. Uh, some of you would like to be or would like to be again. Some of you maybe were married, but your spouse is with the Lord now. Some of you have had marriages fall apart. Some of you feel like maybe the marriage you're in right now is on the brink of falling apart. And so I recognize we're a little all over and all of us have people close to us who fit into one of those categories. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some foundational principles or truths about marriage. We're going to look at four of them uh, to be specific. But I know we can't possibly cover every aspect of marriage in one sermon. I don't think I could do it in one sermon series. There is just too much to talk about there. But if you are a Christian, and I know that not everybody is, but if you are a Christian, or if you're someone who's considering the claims of Christ, then it's important that you know just a few foundational principles about marriage so that uh, you can consider them for your own or you can consider them for people who are close to you. And so, for example, if you're a young person and you're considering marriage, and maybe you have found someone and you're, you're super attracted to him or her and and you guys go out, you know, and you stay out late, and you're just kind of partying, and everything's great. You have like a super fun time, and you think, this is awesome. Like, if we get married, it'll be like this every day. <laughs> Bless your heart. The married people were the ones laughing, okay? <laughs> because, like, you need more than lust and concerts to make a marriage work, right? It, if you're already married, and maybe for the first time, Things aren't fun anymore. And like bills and work stress and schedules and pet peeves that you didn't know the other person was going to trigger in you and all kinds of things, you know, the kids and school and like things are just kind of piling up on you and they seem to be omnipresent. And maybe you're someone who's beginning to think, you know what, I just need a fresh start. I just need to find somebody else that meets my needs a little bit better. If I could just start over again, now I know what I need to do. Well, I would suggest that's not what you need. What you need is to be reminded of God's purpose in marriage and to be reminded that you and your needs and your desires being fulfilled is not the primary purpose God has for marriage. You need a new perspective, not a new partner. Or maybe your marriage has already fallen apart. Maybe you're somebody who was sinned against deeply, and you're bearing some scars from that. Or maybe your marriage fell apart, and now with time and a little bit of clarity, you realize, oh, no, it, it, it really was me. And I sinned against my spouse egregiously. And maybe knowing God's purpose for marriage actually pushes you into a place of guilt and shame over what didn't go right. Well, you need to be reminded of the gospel 
And I think that if you understand more the picture of God's covenant love in marriage, it'll actually help you heal, not drive you to a place of, of shame. And so understanding God's purpose for marriage has all kinds of ways that it benefits us. And I know that applying biblical principles is the hard work of faith. I know that. But you can't apply what you don't know. And so what we're going to do is look at just these four foundational principles about marriage. There's much more that we could say, but we're going to start the conversation here. You can follow along in your, with your notes if, if that helps you. The first principle is this. The marriage is designed by God. It's designed by God. In Genesis 1, we get this poetic recap of God's creation of all things. And six times he creates, and every time that he creates, the scripture says, God saw that it was good. And so it's creation good. He creates it's good. He creates six times. The seventh time, and in, in Hebrew um, poetic language, um, the number seven often represents perfection or completion. And so the seventh time that he creates something, Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And this curious thing happens in Genesis 2. For the first time, God says that something he created was not good. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, Adam, should be alone. Now, there's been no sin yet. The world isn't corrupted yet. All things are perfect except the man without a woman. So God had formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed his spirit into him in Genesis 2.7. Then he forms the woman out of the man in Genesis 2.22. He puts Adam into uh, like an induced coma and takes his rib out and he forms uh, Eve. Um, so uh, if you're a man uh, and you really love your wife and racks of ribs, that's biblical. <laughs> Praise God. Amen? All right? You say, hey, I'm just living out Genesis 2, honey. <laughs> um, it's also the last time that happened. That was the one and only time that a woman was formed out of a man. In Genesis 2.22, every human born after Genesis 2.22 was formed out of a woman. So Adam wakes up in Genesis 2.23, he sings the first love song, and then in Genesis 2.24, he says this, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that principle established from the beginning as part of God's created order. That is the single most important foundational truth about marriage. It is designed by God. It's his institution. He created it. And ultimately, all the conversations that we have about marriage have to come back to this principle. So uh, I drive a 2012 Mini Cooper. Um, it's a fun little car I scoot around in. If, I, if you... Um, you know, meet me for coffee, and I'm super frustrated with you. And you're like, hey, Chip, what's going on? I said, I, I need 20 bales of pine straw from Lowe's, and I went over there, and I can't get them in my mini. It's just not meeting my needs. Well, you're like, well, duh, bruh. Like, it's not designed to carry 20 bales of pine straw. You need a truck, not a Mini Cooper, right? Like, the design matters, right? And a lot, not all, but a lot of the problems that people run into in marriage arise because they ignore the way that marriage was designed by God. 
And what they're focused on is what they want out of marriage or what they think about marriage. We see this principle of the foundational truth mattering in Matthew 19. Jesus is asked about divorce law. And rather than arguing the merits of case law with the Jewish lawyers who ask him the question, what he does is he goes right back to Genesis 2.24. And so he answers them this. He answered, this is Matthew uh, 19.4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is where Jesus goes, right back to Genesis 2, 24, to answer their question. Now, you might say, look, man, that's 2,000 years ago. We've adapted, we've moved on, culture has changed. Like, you can't expect us to look at a foundational truth about marriage from 2,000 years ago. But consider, if you will, how far Jesus is removed from Adam and Eve. Like the most conservative young earth people will tell you that he's about 4,000 years removed from them. Minimally. And it just goes up from there. Some of you would say, no, no, that number needs like several more zeros on the end of it. But the smallest number is that he's about 4,000 years removed. So we're closer to Jesus than Jesus was to Adam. And his answer is, you got to consider the way this thing started off before we're going to have this conversation about what we can or cannot do. And so we are all closer to him, and we too, as Jesus did, need to consider how it is that marriage was designed by God. And so to be very clear in just one sentence, the way that God designed marriage to function was between one man and one woman in a covenant marriage for life. That's his design. Anything outside of that is outside of God's design. Now, I know, I know that that is not culturally or politically correct to say. I understand that. But you can't read the Bible and come away with any other interpretation. You just can't. Now, you could read it and disagree. That's, that's your choice. You could read it and say, well, that's a Christian principle, and I don't think that Christian principles of faith should necessarily determine American laws about marriage. Okay, that's a whole separate conversation that has some merit to it. We can have that conversation. You could read it and say, you know what? I'm not doing that. That's fine. But if you're going to read God's word with any intellectual honesty, that's the design that you're going to come to. And then you have to make a choice on how you think that should or should not form your own views on marriage or society's laws about marriage, etc., etc. But that's the design. That marriage was designed by God. Second principle. Marriage is a display of God. So the design matters because the design points us to purpose. The design is a, is a marker that, that says, hey, there's some purpose here. So you could look at a hammer's design and understand that it's not meant to paint pictures with. Fair? You could look at the design of a submarine and know that its purpose is not to fly. Right? Design points us to purpose. So if God designed marriage, what's his purpose for it? Glad you asked. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul writes this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Beginning to sound familiar? It's right back to Genesis 2.24. He's into the design principles. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul's saying the point of marriage is that it displays God's covenant love for his covenant people. Paul's saying if you consider the design of marriage, its purpose is to display God's covenant love for God's covenant people. That's the reason he gave it to you. It's to be a picture of something else. Now, in the 11 verses from Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, during which Paul's talking about marriage, he mentions Jesus' name nine times. Nine times in 11 verses. And what he says is that Christ's love for the church, his love for his people is a model for both submission and headship in marriage, for love in marriage, for spiritual growth and the pursuit of holiness in marriage, for caring for and cherishing your spouse, and for becoming one with your spouse. And all of it, he says, is designed to display God's love for his people. It's a display of Christ and the church. That's what this thing is about. Now, that changes things, doesn't it? Because if that's the purpose, if marriage is a display of God to the watching world, and my marriage is, is pointing my children or my grandchildren, my neighbors, my extended family, my coworkers, my friends, if it's pointing them to God and his love for his people, well, then I have to reconsider, for example, how I talk about my spouse. Because Jesus doesn't demean or denigrate or despise the church. So I have to reconsider how I forgive my spouse. Because Jesus forgives his covenant people over and over and over again. They ask him, how many times? You know, should we forgive seven times? He says, no, 70 times 70. You, you forgive as much as it takes. We have to reconsider how... We serve our spouses because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We have to think about things like, well, how do I view money and other assets? Do we do this based on earning capacity and whose check? Well, it's like Scripture says that the church has been made co-heirs with Christ. Everything that's his is ours. We didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't say, well, let me see your merit and, and, and we'll figure out what you get to inherit in the kingdom. And so we have to reconsider these things. If my marriage is a display of God to the watching world, then loving my spouse, even when it's hard, says something about the steadfast love of the Lord. Committing to counseling and reconciliation, even if I've been sinned against egregiously, well, that says something about the sacrificial love of Christ for the church. Laying aside my own preferences, laying aside what it is that I think that I deserve for the sake of my spouse, it says something about Jesus' incarnational love. Because Philippians 2 said, he laid aside his divine attributes and took on the form of a man. And so if I'm displaying God in my marriage, then it shapes the way we live with one another every day. You tracking with me? If, on the other hand, if I decide that marriage is a partnership that's mutually beneficial, until it's not, 
in which case I can move on and find another partner that's mutually beneficial, perhaps to a greater degree. What does that say about God? Does God only love us when we're useful? And so I have to work really hard to make sure God stays pleased with me? If we decide that monogamy isn't for us, and, you know, we're just going to be swingers, or we're going to have an open marriage, you know, well, what does that say about the exclusivity of God? Should we just gather two or three or four or five gods around us if we get bored with this one? Because marriage is a display of God's covenant love for his covenant people. If I just wake up one day and I decide that I've fallen out of love, whatever that means, well, what does that that say about the steadfast love of the Lord when he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you? Can I trust that? Because at one point you said you would never leave me, and now you're saying you've fallen out of it. So what does that say about, because God said he wouldn't leave me either. You with me? There's, this is a display of God's love. You show me how someone feels about their spouse, and I'll get pretty far down the road to showing you what they feel about God. Because if you're suspicious of, or constantly disappointed by, or demanding of, or bitter at your spouse, I'd suggest to you there's a real good chance you feel that way about God too. And the opposite is true. I think if you're someone who is walking closely with the Lord, if you're learning over time to lean into him, even when the circumstances of life are hard, if, you are, if you're learning to trust him, even when he makes decisions that you wouldn't have made, or, or maybe his laws aren't exactly the way you would have written them if you were the God of the universe, if you're learning to trust in those situations, there's a really good chance that you're doing those things with your spouse too. And that you're growing in those areas in your marriage too. And the reason for that is because marriage is a display of God. So it's hardwired in to the way that you um, to, to the, the way that you love your spouse and the way that you love God. They're just like inexorably linked together. Because that's the way that God designed it to be. I'll tell you that I have never, to my knowledge, I'm saying this with all sincerity. I've never met two Christians who are married and growing closer to the Lord but farther from each other. I have never encountered that. You find a married couple and they are breaking apart. I've just never seen that where they're both going hard after the Lord at the same time together. So there's this divine design and divine purpose for marriage. And once you understand those two principles... Then you can move on to begin to understand and work on and and correct and strengthen some of the more practical principles of marriage. So we'll, we'll kind of shift into those. Third principle, marriage is to be honored. Marriage is to be honored. First part of Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. What's interesting, if you go back maybe later this afternoon and you read through Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews is not writing that chapter about marriage. It's not a marriage passage. The writer of Hebrews in that passage talks about brotherly love, about being hospitable to strangers, 
about caring for those who are in prison, about refraining from sexual immorality, about avoiding a love of money, being content, praying for your pastors, clinging to sound doctrine, and a handful of other encouragements that are intended for all Christians. And then he puts this idea of honoring marriage into this list of characteristics that should be true of all believers. So he's not saying husbands, or he's not only saying husbands and wives should honor their marriage. He's saying everybody who's a Christian should honor marriage. Marriage should be held in honor among all of God's people. Okay, that's great, but what does that look like? So let me just give you a few examples. Begin um, with the idea of marriage being a covenant. So if you understand what it means to enter into a covenant, then you begin to understand that marriage is sacred to God, it's designed by God, it's a display of God's love for his people. And so you don't enter into it lightly. You don't toss it away lightly because you understand there's a gravity to it. And so you honor it. You don't try to have the benefits of a covenant without the commitment. So for example, you hear people say sometimes, well, uh, we don't really need to be married because we're already married in our heart. Or, you know, it's, it's okay that we're having premarital sex because we're married in our heart. That is not biblical. And you don't think of any other aspect of your life that way. Like never one time have I ever had somebody come to me and say, you know, uh, I'm an engineer in my heart. I don't need some paper from Clemson to tell me that I'm an engineer they just let me build bridges all over town. <laughs> Nobody says that. I've never had somebody say, you know, I'm already baptized in my heart. God doesn't care about the ceremony of baptism. Nobody's ever made that argument to me. Nobody says, you know, um, in our hearts we already own this house. We don't need to go through the closing. You understand that if we go to the closing, there's like financial implications of that, and we're going to have all this debt, and we just can't do that. But in our heart, this is our house. What are you talking about? You're married in your heart. That's not honoring marriage. Why would you take the most sacred of all relationships on earth and treat it with less respect and less gravity and less importance? Marriage is to be honored among all. Here's another one. Honoring marriage means you don't undermine somebody else's. I don't care if you're single. You don't flirt with married people at work. That's an honor their marriage. Say, well, he's having a real hard time with it. So? That's somebody else's husband. You don't flirt. You don't put pressure on your friends to neglect their marriage so they can golf with you every single weekend all year long. That's just selfish, man. Why don't you encourage your friend to spend a little bit of time with his wife, too? You don't undermine other people's marriage by, like, sending your friends links to porn or other temptations that you might just shoot their way, you know? Check her out, man. Don't do that. You're putting a temptation in front of a marriage. You shouldn't do that for single people either. But right, you, no, no, no. You want to honor their marriage. Don't constantly put down or demean someone else's spouse as if somehow they could do better. No, they're married. And so marriage should be held in honor. And so part of the way that you honor marriage is just by not dishonoring it. Fair? Let's just start there by not dishonoring marriage. More than that, though, I would say try to be proactively positive 
about marriage. That's a way you can honor people. And so um, when you see things that are honorable in marriage, mention it. Or if you see a way that people can honor their own marriage. So, you know, if you're in community group, you might need to pull aside your friend and say, hey, man, like we get all your jokes. Your wife's the butt of all of them. That's not honoring her. Don't you remember Chip specifically used this as an example in the sermon? I think he was talking about you. Right? <laughs> Just tell him, you got to stop making jokes at your wife's expense all the time. Or value the wisdom of couples who've been married longer than you. Ask them for advice and then listen. If the only people you ever talk to have been married the same length of time you have or less, they have anything to teach you. Well, they might have some things to teach you, but they don't have as much of a well of wisdom. So you find somebody that's married for 50 years, you might want to take them to coffee and say, hey, we're kind of having a stress moment here. Did anything like this ever happen to you? And then just listen, because they've got through some things, man. You know, honor marriage. I would suggest compliment your friend's spouses in a way that's godly, right? And so, you know, go to, to someone and say, hey, your husband seems like a really good guy. I want you to know that he encouraged my husband a couple of weeks ago, and it really meant a lot to me. I, you know, thank you for that. Or go and say, hey, I noticed the way that your wife is with your kids. I'm learning a lot by watching her. Like point out to other people when their spouses do things that are honorable. That's a way to honor marriage and and just building people up. Like that should be a constant habit of Christians anyway, right? Far too many Christians spend way too much time trying to tear people down, especially online. Like that's a free pass. That's a different sermon. The one way to honor marriage is to speak up when you see something honorable happening. One more. And we could go around the room all day long, right? We could just popcorn ideas. What are some ways you could honor marriage? If you're in a community group, that might be a really good thing. You could just spend your whole community group conversation this week saying, hey, what can we do to honor marriage? That would be a great way to, but that's, I'll let Josh handle his questions with that. So um, one more, though. I think you can honor your marriage by working on it. So Kristen and I this week are um, going to an in-town marriage retreat um, at our sending church, a church at Life Park. Just a small thing for pastors and their wives. That's us working on our marriage. You hear us talk about re-engage a lot, um, and it's listed on our community group page. Re-engage is an awesome place to work on your marriage. It's not designed for marriages that are falling apart, though it can speak to those. And it's not only designed for marriages that are rock solid already, though it speaks to those. It's just a way for married couples to come together in a small group atmosphere and work on their marriage. And so if you want more information about that, grab Josh or um, uh, the Walkers maybe and just say, hey, um, can you tell me more about re-engage? It's a great way to do that. I would say um, date nights, like if you have the financial ability to go on dates, do that and be intentional about it. If you can get away for a weekend, great. Go away for the weekend. But if you don't have those resources and you need to stay in, you can still work on your marriage. Our girls laugh at us. They call it our fancy dinner. But there was a time when uh, Kristen and I, we couldn't really afford, you know, once you have kids going out, like now you got to hire a sitter, that's like 50 or 80 more dollars, depending on how long you're gone. And it can be pricey to go on dates, right? And so we would just do a homemade charcuterie and cheese board. Um, which our girls think is like silly, but we just grab a baguette, slice that thing up, you know, and we sit in front of the TV and have a date. And now we don't need a sitter because our children are older and we still do it. We did it last week because we're like, who doesn't like meat and cheese? (laughs) 
right? I mean, you throw some olives and almonds on there and like, it's fancy, right? And so like there is a way for you to work on your marriage, no matter where you are, what phase of life that you're in. So honor your marriage by working on it. And I would suggest to you that everything valuable or precious in your life needs periodic maintenance. Your car, your boat, your house. I was grumbling about how much periodic maintenance my house needed yesterday. Right? Your jewelry, you like to get it clean from time to time. Everything that's valuable or precious needs some maintenance every now and then. And that includes your marriage. So marriage is to be honored. So take it seriously. I assure you God does. Don't undermine it, but build it up in others and work on your own. Fourth principle, one more. Marriage is imperfect. It's imperfect. Marriage, if this is the only thing you hear this morning, hear this. Marriage is two sinful, broken people trying to live together in a sinful, broken world. And every now and then, it is hard, and it is messy, and it is imperfect. And all the married people said, Amen. it's hard, y'all, and it doesn't always go right. Jesus was perfect at balancing grace and truth. I'm not, we're not, we get that balance wrong from time to time. But the grace that balances the truth of God's design and purpose in marriage is that marriage is imperfect. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is writing about how Christians should live and how they should live with each other. And he writes this in verses 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, when people like me preach that passage, what they will almost always do is talk about how Christians should treat each other, how Christians should treat their neighbors, how Christians should treat people like out there. And that's good. Yes and amen. That is true. But in verses 18 to 21... So we're just four verses down. Paul speaks to wives, husbands, children, and fathers. And then in verses 22 and 25, he goes back to talking about the general ways Christians should live. And it's not a one-off either because over in Ephesians 4, he does the exact same thing. It's almost as if married Christians, watch this now. This is like heavy-duty theology. It's almost as if he wants Christian husbands and wives to treat each other at least as well as they treat other people. So here's the reality. If you live with someone every day, they are going to irritate you. They're going to let you down. They're going to forget some things that were really important to you. They're going to sin against you. They're going to make mistakes that are really hard to live with. And you feel like, well, I don't make that mistake. Yeah, you do. Because guess what? You irritate them and you forget some things that were important to them and you let them down too. 
Two sinful, broken people living in a sinful, broken world. But what if, in the context of an imperfect marriage, what if two imperfect people tried as best as they could? Step back into Paul's passage. What if they tried as best as they could to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? And what if they tried just as best as they could to bear with one another, and if they had a complaint against their spouse, to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven them, so they must also forgive? And what if above all else, if they tried with the gracious help of God to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony? And what if that passage wasn't just about the way that we should treat our neighbors or people we go to church with, but actually the people that we live in the same house with? the people that we've entered into a covenant with? What if you were single and you were looking for traits in a spouse? And rather than just deciding that you couldn't marry anyone who was under six feet and, you know, dark-complected, because that's kind of your profile, much to my chagrin, right? Short, red-headed guy. I'm glad there's at least one woman in the world who likes short, bald, red-headed guys. Not as helpful for me. Um, <laughs> she can see the bald part coming in our 20s, believe me. But what if when you were looking for a profile of the person, if you thought, is this person that I'm dating, do they have a compassionate heart? Are they kind and humble? Are they meek? Do they have patience? Do they forgive the people around them because the Lord has forgiven them? How would our marriages be strengthened What would happen to our witness in the community if people looked at our church or people in our community groups or guests who came like, man, that church honors marriage and they work on it. They're jacked up, but man, God's been gracious to them. What if we allowed God's word to change our perspective and reorient our hearts so that then our relationships and our behavior were altered as well. Doesn't that just sound like the Christian life in general? Like, doesn't that just sound like the way that the Spirit shapes us over time? We grow more and more and more like Christ. And so I know that a lot of times it's easy for us to accept imperfection and and be content with just progress in ourselves because we know how hard we're trying and we know that we're growing What if we just extended that same perspective and patience to our spouses? What if more than that, we actually celebrated it in them and said, hey, you're still imperfect, but wow, I just see this growth in you. Like, that's a way to honor marriage. And I would say that the same thing is true for marriages that have failed. So the reality is that there's a lot of people in this room, a lot of people who listen to this podcast who have been divorced or are currently divorced. That is tragic. It is not God's plan for marriage. I have never sat through premarital counseling with a couple who said, we are really excited about getting married, and in 12 years we plan to get divorced. Nobody plans for that. It's not God's plan. It wasn't your plan either. And yes, the harsh reality is that Jesus calls it sin outside of the horrifically tragic situations of abandonment and adultery. But it is not unforgivable. It's not a scarlet letter. 
God's grace is sufficient for divorce too. God's covenant love, his freely offered forgiveness, and his unmerited grace are perfect. Marriage is imperfect. Because humans are involved in it, and we're not God. So if you're someone who carries hurt from a broken marriage, it is okay to talk about that here. It's okay. If you're someone who is remarried, you don't need to feel like a second-class citizen at King's Cross. Like, you don't carry that around as if that's some horrible thing that you can't ever mention to somebody. If you're someone whose marriage is barely hanging on, and if you'd known I was going to preach about this, you wouldn't have come today because it's just too raw and too sensitive. Can I tell you that there is hope? There is nothing beyond God's power to redeem and reconcile and restore. Nothing, including your marriage. It is not too far gone. Let's just talk about it. Just come to us and say, hey, here's the reality of where we are, man. Like we got a house fire going on. And I wish that we'd spoken up when it was a grease fire on the stovetop, but we didn't. And now it's a problem. That's okay. Let's just talk about it. We'll walk with you. I promise you, if you are open and transparent, we will meet you where you are and walk with you. But you can't do that if you're hiding behind a veneer of some fake Christian perfection. And why should you? Because everybody agrees that marriage is imperfect, including yours, including mine. They all are, because it's imperfect people bonded together. Is there more that we could say? Yes, there always is, but we'll leave it there. Here's my um, parting encouragement to you. God's design and God's purpose for marriage can be fulfilled in your life imperfect though it may be. It can be celebrated in the lives of those around you and it can be redeemed and restored when we fall short. Let marriage be held in honor among all of God's people. Let's pray. Father, even the Apostle Paul called marriage a mystery knowing that it somehow was a picture of Christ's love for the church. And we don't really fully understand that, but we receive it. We ask that you would help us to understand it more. Pray that there are those in the room who are carrying wounds of a past broken marriage that you would minister to them and comfort them in a way that only the Spirit can. That if there are marriages in the room with open wounds right now, that you would give people the boldness and the courage to raise their hand and ask for help. Because we know that you make all things new. And that includes marriage. So thankful for the marriages in the room that are strong and healthy and enduring despite their imperfections. And we praise you for that. Pray that we would see more of that. That you would give those who have earned some wisdom over the years in marriage the, the discernment of speaking a timely word to those maybe who are struggling. So we thank you for this beautiful institution that you've given us. Pray that we would honor it more and more as people and as a church. In Christ's name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.